seems to me that we're going to talk about endurance today from Daniel chapter 11, but it seems to me that endurance as a character quality is tough to come by today. And uh, one of the indicators of this, I believe, is that when we see somebody who is genuinely pushing through a difficult season in their life, when, when they're like a persevering, enduring type of person, we all take notice of that. Because it just seems like it's exceedingly rare to find that kind of endurance in the world today. We, we aren't nearly patient enough to be enduring, persevering people. We're not strong enough. We're not committed enough to what's in front of us to stick it through when it gets hard. And some of the examples of that would be, it's, you know, if, if things get tough at work, it's easier uh, perhaps to go and find a new job, to find a new boss, to transfer to a different department than to really stick it out. It's, it's easier to end a relationship sometimes than to try and really work on it. It's, it's easier to, uh, to find a new church. This one has just become difficult. Let's find a new church to go to. There's lots of them. Let's go to a different one rather than working things out. It's easier to school, switch school programs than to dig in. And accomplish something in the one that you're in and see it through to the end. And while it might be easier to quit, Jesus made this stunning statement in the midst of some apocalyptic teaching that he was doing in Matthew's gospel. This is Matthew 24, verse 13. He said, the one, the one who endures to the end, the one who endures to the end will be saved. In other words... The number one assurance that you are actually saved. We had all these people testify to their salvation in the baptism today. Seven, by the way, at 9 a.m. So 13 people were baptized here today, a bunch of them young people. It's so awesome to see this happening. But the way you really know you're saved is not because you got baptized, not because you're the member of a church. The way you know you're really saved is that you're actually standing in front of Jesus at the end. In other words, the full assurance of salvation is that you endured. Jesus said it. The one who endures to the end is going to be saved. And, and that makes it sound like, help me with the logic here, but that makes, me, makes it sound like perseverance is a pretty essential character trait of those who claim to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, if he elevates it to that level, that perseverance is actually the evidence that you're saved, that sounds like a character trait you and I would want to have. And so if we can endure the small things, if we can push through the things that are happening right in front of us on this earth, then that's going to be something that's going to actually help us get right to the very end. These little things become the precursors to the big thing, the eternal thing, the salvation that God has given to us. And as all that relates to Daniel chapter 11, we have this final vision that's being downloaded to Daniel. Daniel 10, 11, and 12, these last three chapters are one unit, and we looked at how it affected Daniel last week, but this is the vision itself now. And it comes at a time when the Jewish people, when Daniel's receiving this vision, some of the Jewish people that have been in exile for seven decades, 70 years, have now made their way back to Israel and are helping to rebuild the land. And things were not easy for them in going back to the land of Israel. And a vision of the future from God was exactly what they needed to push through the hardships that they were facing in rebuilding the land of Israel. And for you and me, the message is clear. 
the true believer will persevere to the end. Every true believer in this room will persevere to the very end. Let me pray for us, and then we'll start looking through these verses in Daniel 11. Father, the word um, perseverance ringing in our ears right now and seeing the weightiness of it in today's text, I pray, God, that we would be so eager to put our hands onto it and to have it for ourselves and to be people who are described as, as persevering and enduring. God, I pray that what we hear in the text, which at times can be very weighty, and there's things here because it's apocalyptic we might not fully grasp, but God, I pray that you would give us understanding in the things that are essential. God, that we would know what you're saying, that we would believe what you're saying, that we would conform our wills to what you're saying, and we would see our lives change as a result of what we've studied in your word today. So God, hear this prayer, please, and answer it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? All right, let's get after this. The true a believer will persevere to the end, not giving up, not giving in, not cashing out, not walking away. The true believer perseveres to the very end. And if I'm persevering, we're going to look at three couplets here. If I'm persevering, I am strengthened by Christ and believing his word. I'm strengthened by Christ and believing his word. Let's read um, a verse and a half here to get started. This is Daniel 11. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. The, uh, the me and the him and the I, um, let's identify who this all is now. Again, 10, 11, and 12 are one unit, one kind of section here that has to be taken all together. And in Daniel chapter 10, we saw who these uh, various people are. As for me, this is uh, Gabriel speaking. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthened him, Daniel. Okay, Daniel's being strengthened here, and it is Gabriel that's showing you, Daniel, the truth. Showing us, through Daniel the prophet, the truth of what he's saying. And so there is a strengthening here, and there is an imparting of God's truth, uh, his word being sent to us. Now Daniel, for his part, was in very rough shape after the vision. In fact, he had been fasting for three weeks, we learn in the first part of Daniel chapter 10. Those three weeks um, are paralleled to the 21 days that some kind of weird uh, behind-the-scenes spiritual warfare is taking place. Uh, Gabriel's involved in that, and Michael the archangel's involved in that, and some uh, bad, evil demon dude is involved in that called the Prince of Persia, and, um, and he was able to withstand, he was able to hold back the messengers of God for these 21 days, the whole time that Daniel is fasting. And so there's something going on between the material world and the immaterial world, and it's all weighing on Daniel heavily through this fasting and through all that had happened, Daniel needed to be strengthened. As verse 1 said, he needed God's angel, his messenger, to come to him and strengthen him and get him to the place where he was even able to receive the truth that God was delivering about this particular vision. Now, the warning on this message, if I could just put like a 
You know, like the Surgeon General's warning on this message right now is this. We want to be so careful that we don't fall into believing that our perseverance, that our endurance is actually earning us our salvation. We're not working for anything here, amen? We're not working for anything here. That salvation is entirely and completely a gift from God to us. We're not doing anything to earn it. And so even in the enduring, even in the persevering, that's only happening because the Holy Spirit is giving us the strength to be able to endure and persevere. Salvation came as a free gift to us. It's the result of Jesus Christ giving his life on the cross. Not because of anything we've done, entirely because of what he did. Amen? It's what Jesus did for us and, and, and his resurrection to new life. That's the thing that defeated sin. That's the thing that defeated death. That's the thing that gives us life. And so uh, we get all of that simply by faith. We express our faith. We tell God we believe that and, and we're going to follow him. That's the whole thing. Entirely a gift that comes from the Lord. And even the ability to persevere is from him. And you can see that in Daniel. He's overwhelmed by these angels, by the appearing of of the pre-incarnate Jesus that he saw in chapter 10. He's overwhelmed by all of it and can't even receive any more of God's word until the messenger comes and strengthens him and allows him to persevere through it. And so with all of that as kind of a setup, what we see next is the content of what is to be believed, the content of God's word, the vision that was being delivered. And this is a vision of, for Daniel now, as he's receiving it, it's a vision of the near future and the distant future and some things that are still a future even for us. Now, here's the thing. We did baptisms today. We shortened the worship set. We have 45 verses in front of us in Daniel chapter 11. So I'm not gonna read all of Daniel chapter 11, but I'm gonna have you read it and you can read all of the verses I didn't read and you can scratch your head later about it all, all right? So I'm just gonna give you some kind of like high-level highlights of what's going on here and we'll start in verse two now. He's going to show him the truth. And he says this halfway through verse two, behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the king of Greece, kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these. All right, let me show you a chart. We, show, we saw this earlier, <clears throat> earlier in the series. <clears throat> we looked at Daniel chapter two. That was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then Daniel got this vision in chapter seven. And Daniel's kind of like in the, right now, as we look at Daniel 11, we're kind of in this, we're in this Medo-Persia era. But when he first got these visions, when all of this happened, he was back in the Babylonian era. And these These two dreams and visions parallel the things that we're now getting more details about at this point. And so in the very middle part of that, these these visions of the four kingdoms, we have Medo-Persia and Greece. And we have all this imagery coming in. And what we're seeing now in the paragraph I just read is more details about all of that. So we had the chest and arms of silver, the middle and thighs of bronze that were Medo-Persia in Greece. Then we had the bear and we had the leopard and the leopard had four wings and four heads because it gets divided up eventually. And that was Greece. And in chapter eight, in fact, of Daniel, uh, we we had a further vision that talked about the ram and the ram was the Medo-Persian empire. And then we had the goat, the greatest of all time. That's Alexander the Great and the Greek empire. And that, listen, all of that gets laid out for us. And now we're seeing it break down in even more detail right here in chapter 11. 
Again, he says, three more kings. This is verse two. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. So at this point, the, the time stamp on, on chapter 11 is Darius the Mede's first year. Back in chapter 10, it was King Cyrus's third year. Those two guys, Cyrus is the top dog in the Persian Empire. And then when they conquer Babylon, Cyrus appoints Darius to be the head of Babylon. That's why it's just his first year, because that just happened. All right, so now you have these two guys, but Cyrus is the head, the head guy. So three more kings come after Cyrus in Persia. Then a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong, this is Xerxes the first. You can read about this in all the history books. When he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. And the, the documented wars between Persia and Greece are all there. And eventually, Greece has enough of all of this. And they come after him. Verse 3, then a mighty king. This is the goat. Okay, the greatest of all time, Alexander the Great. A mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And, and he goes out and he conquers basically the known ancient world. And as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Because Alexander died in his uh, mid to late 30s. Uh, he died away from Greece. His kingdom was not consolidated. Um, and four of his generals actually took the kingdom and divided it into four parts. Now, I'll show you the map in a second. But notice, but not to his posterity. It didn't go to his sons like it would normally happen because they murdered his two sons. And so the generals could, could divide up the kingdom. Not according to the authority with which he's ruled. It, just, it didn't happen at all according to what he wanted. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So let's look at this map. We looked at this before. So the four parts of Alexander's kingdom. The big yellow part there is the Seleucid Empire. The purple part at the bottom where Egypt is, is the Ptolemies. And then you have these other two, the orange and the green, which are not as important to us at this particular point And don't figure in these prophecies. And so we have this map in mind, the kingdom of Alexander, the Greek empire divided up into four. Now, we move then into chapter, verse five, beginning at verse five, and this is where, I'm just gonna summarize some of what's going on here. I've read it all up until this point. But from verse five through to verse 31, it's, it's really just an account over history of the back and forth battle between the Seleucids, that's the yellow or the Syrians, and the Egyptians or the Ptolemies in the purple part. And it's just back and forth. Kings of the north, kings of the south are what are mentioned here. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Always at war, always in conflict with one another. Then verse 16 says this, but he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land. Where do you suppose that is? What's the glorious land? It's Israel, right? It's Israel. Now, here's the thing. Let's see this. That's, that's where the arrow is pointing. Now, here's the problem. If the Seleucids and the Ptolemies want to fight each other, and they can't go through Arabia because it's a, it's a desert. You can't go through Arabia. The only way to get between these two empires is through this narrow strip of land called Israel that's pointed out on the map. And so every time the Seleucids and the Ptolemies got angry with each other and every time they wanted to fight each other, it happened in Israel. Over and over again, it just keeps happening in what Daniel calls here or what the vision that's given to him is this, it happens in the glorious land. Right in the middle of these two warring kingdoms. 
And then the conflict finally culminates in verse 31, and I want you to look there. Forces from him shall appear and profane. So this one solicit ruler that we'll talk about in just a moment. Forces from him, a king of the north, shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. I'm going to end the sacrificial system at the temple in Jerusalem and shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He's going to take away the offering. He's going to end the worship. And then he's going to bring this thing into the temple. And historians believe that this was a chunk, a meteorite that fell from the heavens that then was identified as something related to Zeus. And they came and they brought it and they put it in the temple and made it an idol and they worshipped it there and they brought in a pig, an unclean animal, and sacrificed it there on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. Absolutely abhorrent to every Jewish person and defiling the temple that had been set up as the meeting place with God. Now listen, this is the work of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, a Seleucid ruler from the kingdom of the north, from this yellow kingdom. And this man was a vile toward the Jewish people. And you know, we could read every verse, uh, all the verses that we've passed over here from verse uh, 5 through 31. We could read all uh, of that and the rest of uh, this chapter. And we could lay it all right on top of historical events. You could pick any history book you want of this period of history that speaks of the Persians and the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and all of them. And it all perfectly lines up. And then we could begin speculating about going forward, what it all means and how it all relates to us and what applies to our day and what countries are what and what is the king of the north and the king of the south. And some of that we'll see in the next section. But we need to be so cautious here. And I said this earlier in the series when we're interpreting the apocalyptic literature that it's not about locking down all the fine details, but rather gaining the overarching themes of what God is saying. And Daniel Bloch said this as a reminder to us, authoritative preaching of the message of the apocalyptic literature demands that we major on the major themes and be less concerned about the meaning and significance of the fine details. And what I can tell you about all of this is as we look at, at, at these prophecies, specifically in this first part of chapter 11, is that both liberal and conservative scholars on this point essentially agree on the historical facts contained here. Again, you can read the histories, you can compare it to Daniel 11, you'll see that it all lines up. What the liberal and conservative, and we would consider ourselves conservative scholars, looking at the Word of God and believing what God is writing here is legit. What liberal and conservative scholars disagree on is when was this written? See, we look at it and see it as prophecy, and Daniel was receiving this in the 6th century and was looking down through the ages to see all of this detailed prophecy that would come true. But liberal scholars look at this and call it prophecy after the fact. That is to say that it was written in the 2nd century BC, looking back on historic events, and then was written as if it was written back then and projecting it forward as prophecy. And of course, what we believe is that God is once again demonstrating his sovereignty over history. God knew all these things. God was ordaining that all of this should happen. And it's not outside the power of God at all to see exactly what would happen in history and give a solid word about that. That God's purpose in doing this is to, and this is the first point, is to strengthen his people with details about the future. 
so that as they face their challenges in life, they would be able to have confidence in God's word and believe it outright because God had said this would happen and it did and God said this would happen and it did and God said this would happen and it did. And I can trust him through all of it. I can persevere through anything that comes my way. I can persevere to the end. All right, that's the first one. Let's look at this second couplet. If I'm persevering to the end, I'm also to be standing firm for Christ, standing firm for Christ and fulfilling his mission. Let's look at verse 32. And this is a pretty critical verse in this whole chapter. You should have this underlined or highlighted if you have an electronic Bible. He shall seduce with flattery. Now we're talking about this Antigus Epiphanes. He put the, this abomination that causes desolation. He put this in the temple. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Now Antigus does here, notice what he does. He, he is, by the way, I already said that he was very difficult on Jewish people. It's not inappropriate at all to say his name in the same breath as Adolf Hitler. Both men had the same goal in mind to eradicate the Jewish people, uh, to persecute them, to destroy them, to kill them. Can't ever forget what happened in the Holocaust, but please understand that wasn't the first time that that happened to the Jewish people in their history. So verse 32, he comes along and Tigus shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Now, you're talking about somebody who violates the covenant. You're talking about this is a person who should not be violating the covenant. In other words, the Jewish people were covenant people. They're people of the covenant, the agreement that had been struck between them and God. They're people of the book, people of the word of God. And yet these Certain Jews had violated the covenant because Antiochus had seduced them with flattery. I could make your life so much easier. You just need to follow my way of doing it. This is a better way to live your life and to have a society. There were some Jews who gave in to Antiochus Epiphany's seductive offers and bought into his evil. Now, what exactly was going on here? Well, Antigas was a, a Macedonian. He, he, he was a part of the Greek empire and the Greek leadership structure that had conquered the world. Even the Ptolemies were Macedonians ruling in Egypt. And so you have Antigas, and he is carrying on with what Alexander had started, which was the Hellenization of the ancient world. In other words, they were spreading Greek influence everywhere. Now, some of that was really positive for the world. In the sense of the Mediterranean world, or at least from Greece around to Egypt and on into India, we had the spreading of Greek culture, which created a common language that was being spoken throughout the world during those centuries. Roads were being built. Infrastructure was being put into place. A common culture was beginning to be adapted. And some of that was actually quite good. It gave us, for example, our New Testament written in the Greek of the day, a common language rich in, in vocabulary and words and sentence structure and all of this for our New Testament to be rewritten. A common culture and common roads created the opportunity for missionaries to spread everywhere after the gospel was given to the world. So part of Hellenization was really, really positive. And part of it, the adopting of the actual culture of the Greek empire wasn't so great when it asked people to compromise their faith, as was true for these Jews who violated the covenant. And there will always be people, and there are people today, there will always be people who say they are for God. I believe in God. I love God. 
but who betray them, betray him with their actions. There'll always be people like that. All throughout history, there's been people like that. And there is always, we see this in verse 32 as well, there's always a faithful, persevering remnant of true believers who withstand all opposition and all persecution and remain faithful to God no matter what. Those two groups of people always exist, and we see both of them in verse 32. Notice the last part. But the people who know their God, the people who really believe in him, the people who are going to persevere to the end, they're going to stand firm. And they're going to take action. And Daniel's seeing a vision of many who remain faithful throughout the awful episode with Antigus Epiphanes, who was finally, by the way, defeated in 165 BC. And the curious thing about preaching this message today, I wish I could tell you that I was smart enough to line this message up on this date because I really thought this through. But Antiochus Epiphanes was finally defeated by a, a, a man by the name of a Judas Maccabeus, who was a Jewish freedom fighter. And he rallied people to attack Antiochus and to, and to retake the temple and to reclaim Israel for the people of God. And the commemoration of the retaking of the temple is what the Jews today celebrate as Hanukkah. And the word Hanukkah means rededication. And the first day of Hanukkah, while we're preaching Daniel 11 about Antiochus Epiphanes being defeated, the first day of Hanukkah is December the 2nd this year. I'm so smart that I lined this up. (laughs) But I did not line this up at all. And you know that this menorah is lit, so there are nine candles and one, the middle candle. This is actually a little bogus because they're using a different candle to light it. But you're supposed to use that middle candle to light the other eight candles. And this commemorates the miracle that was done in the temple Because the oil for the lamp, the lampstand that was in the temple, there was only enough oil for one day, and it burned for eight days straight. And God did a miracle, and the Jews commemorate that today with Hanukkah. Hanukkah. It's the celebration of the rededication of the retaking of the temple from Antigus Epiphanes right here in Daniel chapter 11. Now, this little excerpt from 1 Maccabees, not scripture, but it is a good historical record, says this. And this is where you're going to see the persevering of the people. Maccabees tells the story of Judas Maccabeus and the taking of the temple. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. And they chose to die rather than be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. In other words, there was a faithful, persevering remnant. There were some who did not violate the covenant and go after the Hellenization that, uh, that um, Antiochus Epiphanes was bringing in. They were faithful to God. That's the vision. That's what's going on here. Now we ask the question, why in the world would God give this whole vision to to the Jewish people and to us? And I've already pointed out that some of the exiles had already returned to Israel, that Cyrus was allowing them to go back and, in fact, to rebuild the temple under Ezra's leadership. And what they faced in going back was a very difficult task. I've alluded to this already. The land had been neglected. The city was in ruins. There was little to no economy. And when we ask the all-important Bible study question, we should always be asking ourselves this when we're interpreting the Bible. What did the original author intend for the original audience? What's the intent of what I'm reading for those first people that read this? And we have to answer the question this way. It was to encourage those first exiles that were going back to a very broken land to rebuild it against all odds. There's a massive task of rebuilding the nation and they needed to know that God was with them and that he was in control of history. That all of this hardship was according to his plan. See, they had left comfortable homes 
Seven decades of building their life in Babylon and then Persia and to leave all of that, to go hundreds of miles and to rebuild something that was extremely broken. They needed to know God was with them in that so that they would carry on and fulfill their mission. Rebuild the temple of Israel and reestablish the worship of God in Jerusalem. Now think about this. For them to really enter into what they were seeking to do, all they saw in front of them was the monumental task of rebuilding the land. That's all they could see. All they could see was the trial. All they could see was the hard thing that was right in front of them. It's just like you and me. When we go into hard times and struggles and hardships, all we can see is the trial. Or is that just me? Anybody here? So you're, you're playing through the pain and you're trying to see something else and you're trying to see God's purposes in it and you can't because you're just going, I hurt too much. This is too hard. All I can see is the trial. So God wanted to assure them. There's so much more on the other side of this that's being accomplished that you don't even get. In fact, the principal thing that they were seeking to do when they went back with Ezra was to rebuild this temple. The first temple had been built by Solomon, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years prior. And and now they're coming back to build what would be called the second temple. They think it's just so they can worship. They don't realize that about 500 years later, a young couple is going to walk up the steps to the temple carrying a little baby that they just had. And they're going to dedicate him to the Lord. And while they're there, an old man named Simeon, faithful to God, and a woman named Anna are going to come up. And they're going to recognize who this baby is. And they're going to bless this baby and speak words of prophecy over him. And when he's 12 years old, he's going to come back with his folks. They're going to leave town, not even knowing that he's not with them in the whole family entourage. And he's going to be back in that same temple, that second temple. He's going to be teaching the religious leaders. He's going to be astounding them with what he knows of the scriptures. And about 18 years later, he's going to start a ministry that's going to land him back in that same city, back in that same temple where he's going to drive out money changers that had turned the temple of God into a den of thieves. And he's going to proclaim that it was always intended to be a house of prayer. And he would challenge the religious leaders in that very temple that these people were going back from exile to build. After he would die resurrected and ascend to the Father. His own followers, Peter, James, would walk into that same temple and would heal a blind, a lame man on the steps. They couldn't have known. They couldn't have known that what they were doing was setting up the whole redemptive plan. They, they couldn't have known that their Messiah would be walking into that temple. Yeah, that's how God is working. It's so difficult to see beyond what's happening right in front of us. But that's why we have to stand firm and take action and continue on in the mission and be the people God intends for us to be. Because we simply don't know what God's going to do next. Next year, 10 years from now, three generations from now, 400 years from now, we have no idea. 
what God is going to do with our faithfulness to Him, with our perseverance, with those who know, verse 32 says, for those who know their God. And our part is to endure. Listen now, our part is to endure all of the nonsense around us. How many people here have nonsense going on in their life right now? Our part is to endure all the nonsense that's going on around us and simply do what Jesus told us to do. Be faithful to that. Stand firm in that. Carry on the mission, which from day one has been that we would worship our God face to face. And the process of getting there is the making and maturing of disciples. History's been moving in that direction since the moment of the fall in the garden. And we await the day when the new Jerusalem is going to descend to the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to hear this from Revelation chapter 21. A loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Amen? Every true believer who perseveres to the end will see this day. I'll be standing there when this happens from Revelation 21. Because you'd stir, you stood firm in your faith. Because you carried on the mission without fail until that day happens. All right, here's a final one. Final couplet. A true believer will be enduring hardship in Christ, in Christ, and embracing his purposes. Now, I just read that little section from Revelation 21, and it's an awesome section, and we can get all pumped up. That's kind of like a pump you up kind of a passage for sure. But the road to get there, I think we all understand, is a tough one. We all know that. Now, picking up at verse uh, 33 now, and what happens now in this transition from verse 33, kind of up 35, maybe a little further, it sounds a lot like the history part of Antigus Epiphanes, which is all done for us, was future for Daniel, but it's all in the past, the distant past for us. You're going to hear some of this. It sounds like Antigus. And then some of it doesn't sound like Antigus, and it must be someone else. The wise among the people, I'm going to read verses 33 to 35. The wise among the people shall make many understand. Okay, these are believers, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. It's going to be hard. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help and many shall join themselves to them with flattery and some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. So this all seems like it's still something that's future and that there are painful days ahead for those who love Jesus and are following him. We're still looking for something that is at the time of the end. It awaits the appointed time. Hasn't happened yet. And it seems that because there are details here that don't fit in Tiger's Epiphanies, that we are talking now about the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is a future leader who's going to make Antigus Epiphanies seem like a Boy Scout. Okay, difficult, difficult days ahead for this world. Picking up at verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. Speaking of this antichrist, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. He shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods and he shall prosper. 
until the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done and he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other God for he shall magnify himself above all. That could be Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means that he's the magnificent one. He gave himself that title. But this goes even beyond that. This person is now putting themselves in a place of deity. And he shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these, a God whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. Okay, serve the Antichrist. It's going to seem like it's going really well for you. And he shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Now, we spoke earlier, the reason why we can see some of this looking like Antiochus Epiphanes and yet some of it not, and we're thinking this is the Antichrist, is because the rules that we set out for interpreting the apocalyptic include the idea that sometimes we can read prophecies that are partially fulfilled in the past, but ultimately and finally fulfilled in the future, and that's what we're seeing here. There's little doubt that these verses speak of a king who is yet to come, who's going to do as he wills, who's going to exalt himself, who's going to magnify himself, who's going to make himself out to be a god. And the reason why we know when we read this section that this is yet future for us in Daniel 11 and was not fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to his end in 165 BC, is because when Jesus came and was teaching, he actually quotes from Daniel chapter 11. And again, this is in Matthew 24, if you want to jot this reference down. But Matthew 24, apocalyptic section. Here's what he says in Matthew 24, 15 and 16. Jesus speaks of all of this as yet future. So when you see the abomination of desolation, okay, that's a reference to what Antiochus Epiphanes did, but now it seems like it's going to happen again. That was just like a precursor or preview to what's going to happen. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I mean, it's going to get harder. This whole thing that we're reading about, it's going to all happen again. We pick it up in verse 40 now. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. I don't even know who all these people are. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind. Lots of people want to see that as Russia. Okay, that might fit now. Maybe Vladimir fits the bill now. But maybe not someday, so that's why we're not going to pin things down. Poor Vladimir. <laughs> going to rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall over, overflow and pass through. And he shall come into the glorious land. Speaking of Israel now, again, the focus is going to be on Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of Ammonites. And he shall stretch out his hand against the countries. And the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become a ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver. And all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. I mean, everybody's going to go after the Antichrist. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. A showdown's going to come. I mean, at the end of the time, things are going to get harder for those who love and serve Jesus before that end comes. Believers alive at the time will have to persevere through it. It's this same chapter that has that verse that we started with. It's the one who perseveres to the end that's going to be saved. It's the one who's standing there at the very end of it all. 
When we think about that word endurance, we have to get a firm lock on what that actually means now. The word endurance uh, from the Greek, and whenever we see this in, in the scriptures, it's the Greek word hupomene, hupomene, hupomene. You can see it in the Greek script and then transliterate it in English. And in, in its most basic sense, it means to remain under, remaining under. In other words, if there's a crisis, if there's a trial, if there's a hardship, I'm going to stay under that. I'm not going to try to get out from under the thing that God is trying to do in my life. I actually want to be in the place, as hard as it is, I want to be in the place where God wants me to be. I want to patiently endure the oppression, the trial, the injustice, so as to fulfill his purposes. One lexicon, Thayer's lexicon, says this, Hupomene is the characteristic of a person who's not swerved from his or her deliberate purpose, loyalty to faith, and piety by even the greatest trials and sufferings. I'm not going to swerve from it at all. Nothing's going to make me abandon my faith and reject my Savior. Nothing. Nothing is going to make me abandon my faith and reject my Savior. Because I'm going to see a purpose in it. See verse 35, some of the wise, some of the faithful believers, they're going to stumble. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be trials. Here's the purpose. So that they may be refined and purified and made white, the text says. And that reminds me of James 1 uh, verses 2 and 3. And these are so familiar. These verses count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. If you're reading the ESV, you just see brothers there, but the footnote has sisters, so I elevated them up into the text. I haven't changed the Bible. I've just changed the ESV. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces hupomene. It produces endurance and perseverance. And we can't gloss over this. This is it. I'm trying, not trying to oversimplify this for us. Or make it sound easy at all. In fact, just the opposite. The Christian life lived properly is difficult. Don't ever believe anything else. We endure because we are in Christ. That is to say, Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ. We've gone to the cross to crucify self. That doesn't sound easy at all. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible say that, that Jesus Christ endured the cross. He hupomenated the cross. He remained under the, 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 um, the cruelty of the cross, the crucifixion. He remained under that. And in the same passage, it tells us, therefore, because he hupomenated the cross, we need to run our own race, live our own life with endurance. We need to hupomenate our life. We need to remain under whatever God sends our way. And the reality is that many don't get there because they've not started, first of all, to give their life to Christ and understood what this really means. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 that if anyone would come after me, he has to uh, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And because he said things like that, people turned away from him, walked away and said, that's just too hard. The Christian life properly lived is difficult. 
G.K. Chesterton said it this way, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And someone who genuinely understands what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you really get it. You either fully embrace it or you walk away from it going, that's too, tar- that's too difficult. I'm not doing that. See, Antiochus had, had, had drawn people by flattering them, by spinning out lies, drawing him, them to himself by saying, I can make your life easier and better. Just, just follow my ways. It's exactly what the world does. I'm going to tell you just the opposite. Christian life, live properly, is difficult. Now, Jesus lays all of that in front of us to build our faith, to increase our dependency on him, to find our strength in him. And we, so we look past the current pain to the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. And I've saved one little last little bit of Daniel 11. You see it there? The last little line says, yet he shall come to his end, speaking of Antiochus and the Antichrist, he shall come to his end with none to help him. In the end, true believers will be standing with him. And those who rejected him, who opposed him, who hated him, will come to their end and nobody will be there to help them. Endure hardship in Christ and embrace his purposes for this world and for you. Now let me pull this all together in a few lines. I'm going to put these slides up on the screen and see if this isn't just helpful to kind of synthesize and bring it together and say this is what perseverance actually is. If you find strength in Christ and not yourself, if you believe what he says in his word and are resolute in your faith, if you continue to serve him and witness to others of his love, if you're pushing through hardship and trials in your life, and if you're seeing God's purposes in it all, then you have the kind of endurance that Jesus spoke of and you will persevere. To the end. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that um, as challenging as this message is to even grasp all the prophetic things that are said here, I pray, God, that every true believer in this room would be leaving today encouraged and built up knowing that you're in charge of it all. You've got it all under control. And I pray that we would be built up and strengthened in our faith knowing this. God, I pray for those in the room who don't know you as Savior and with the testimonies we heard in the baptism and what we've heard from God's word, Father, I pray that if there are any here who have not yet bent the knee and surrendered their life to Christ, that they would do that today, right now, before they leave the building. And God, that they would set themselves on a course to have all that you have promised, to be there at the end, to hear those amazing words, And to know that the dwelling place of God is now with his people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.